First of all, thank you very much, both of you, for this wonderful film uh, about uh, Nekritude and especially, of course, uh, the position of Volsuinka uh, towards Nekritude. Um, I would like to start the journey into truth from where we are, from the Haus der Kultur in der Welt. Mm. Uh, when you arrived this morning, you told me a story which is attached you to the HKW on the one side, the Haus der Kultur in der Welt, but also to some extent to the health system in Germany. <laughs> and I think this is a, a marvelous introduction to one kind of truth. Could you please tell us this story? Oh, well, I suppose you need some light relief after that very dense and uh, historic and uh, you know, nostalgic also film. All right, so you want the light relief. Um, well, what happened was, I was on this very stage some years ago, I came to, uh, to um, direct a reading of my long poem, Samarkand. Samarkand and other markets I have known. I consider the market, by the way, one of the most uh, ecumenical and um, humanity-uniting structures that one can ever think of. That's by the way. So we had Samarkand here, and uh, uh, towards about two days before the performance, and I had to be on stage, so I was feeling ill, feverish, knees were wobbling, uh, mouth was dry. I didn't know what on earth was happening, because I had been in Europe for some time for the rehearsals. I couldn't have picked up a, a bug anywhere except food poisoning, because you know, there's no um, illness in Europe. They're very healthy. <laughs> but anyway, so finally I managed to survive the performance. But by the end of it, I was totally washed out. And the following morning, the management insisted I must be taken to hospital, to the teaching hospital the, uh, here. As I was subjected to all kinds of tests. Um, and eventually, you know, I sat there, eventually, after a couple of hours, the doctor came and very solemnly informed me that I had malaria. <laughs> malaria. Oh, so I said, is that all? Um, that's okay, I'm going back to Nigeria tomorrow. I will uh, sort everything out in Nigeria. Thank you so much. And if you want to give me something to take in the meantime, I'll appreciate it. And she said, no, you can't leave. I said, what do you mean I can't leave? She said, no, you can't, you have malaria. I said, yeah, so? So once you have malaria, we have to report it, etc. I said, wait a minute, uh, where, where am I? I said, in Nigeria, where I come from, we have malaria for breakfast, we have it for lunch, and we have it for dinner. So I'm going home where they understand things about malaria. That I couldn't. It was a big argument. Eventually I said, listen, you cannot hold me here forcibly. I'm traveling to Nigeria tomorrow. I said, okay, in that case, we have to get the lawyers. <laughs> so they got the lawyers, the lawyers came, reams of papers, I had to sign an indemnity, and so on and so forth. This thing went on. I said, listen, if, if, if they heard in Nigeria, and I was due back tomorrow, I said, they heard in Nigeria, when I arrive, 
the hair that I was delayed in Europe on account of malaria, when I arrive, I'll be arrested by my family. <laughs> I'll be locked up. Uh, a psychiatrist, traditional psychiatrist, <laughs> we brought to examine me. I said, then the government will remove my passport, will take my, seize my passport, then I'll be chased out through the land borders in a vehicle with the rattles, you know, attached to the vehicle saying, this is an impostor, he never was in Nigeria, we don't know where he was born. <laughs> and, uh, so I was allowed to go home anyway after signing all the papers. <laughs> I've been told them that my brother trained here in Germany and I promise you when I get there, I'll have him waiting for me with an ambulance uh, at the door of the airplane. So I assure you, yeah, okay. No, I had to sign all those papers. So that was my experience at the hand of German health authorities, which was <laughs> No, we are very glad that you came back in spite of it. Um, no, I think it's a perfect example uh, where you have a uh, system established which produces reality, in this case, mala what malaria is, mm -hmm. on the basis of science, which is an institution, and you have a whole system around these sciences, such as the healthcare system, who uh, uh, implements this uh, institutionally uh, with all these consequences you uh, uh, you showed. I think this uh, kind of truth system which uh, acts on the, on the role of procedures mm -hmm. which are defined and you have to st uh, stay to them or not. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we leave uh, <laughs> Europe uh, behind us and come back again to uh, your discussion on negritude. Basically, there were two uh, points uh, the film develops uh, you perspectives you had on uh, negritude. The one was a very critical one, uh, basically in the 60s. Uh, the tiger doesn't broadcast his tigritude. Mm -hmm. And there was a second one which was much more constructive, uh, constructive or positive to, to negritude. And the basis of that, as I uh, understood it, was you discovered the, uh, the universalism behind negritude, but not a general universalism, but a universalism which is based in African experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, and the film discusses this rela uh, in relation to uh, visual arts. I would uh, like to ask you, could you uh, explore a little bit this notion of uh, this kind of uh, uh, African-based universalism with relation to your writing, your fiction writing? Mm -hmm what that means for you. Uh, perhaps the best illustration of that, or shall we say parallelism, or another form of expression of, of that universalism, would be the Archbishop Desmond Tutu's uh, expression of Ubuntu. Ubuntu which he extracted from uh, Zulu or Kosa philosophy, I can't quite remember which, the sense that humanity is, um, is one bundle, like a broom, and that uh, if you extract one piece, you reduce the totality. Um, and uh, under Ubuntu, the notion that there is really no, um, uh, no, no stranger, no outcast, no outcast 
within the bundle of humanity. I think that's the, the, uh, the closest extract I can think of from within African usage itself uh, to the notion of the universalism of negritude. I should emphasize, by the way, that, um, and this is often <laughs> uh, misunderstood, um, it wasn't that we didn't recognize the, even the universalist uh, potential of negritude, no. I think it was more a question of style rather than content. Negritude came out in a very, I use the word simplistic, uh, rhapsodic, and at the same time sweeping uh, generalization of what I always consider um, a very multiple and very complex uh, cultured society, which is Africa. And um, what we failed to give uh, full weight to was, even though I mentioned it in the film, the difference between French colonialism and uh, British, for instance. French on the one side, Portuguese, etc. the assimilados, Spanish, you know, and the sort of indirect rule of the British. We failed to give due weight to it at the time for the simple reason that we hadn't lived in Francophone countries. But later we realized that the Francophonie actually, it was inevitable that that movement would come out of anybody who had undergone the French method of colonialism. Nevertheless, uh, coming back to your own writing, uh, and you also refer in the film and also in different contexts, uh, that you see your writing very much based in Yoruba uh, uh, culture, mm -hmm. but at the same time uh, with a universalistic uh, appeal. Mm -hmm. So could you explain that a little bit uh, in, in detail? Well, and and mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that also in the film, mm -hmm. that uh, your contribution, so to say, your, to universalism, or your and African contribution, mm -hmm. is that there is not one reality, there are many realities, there is not one truth, there are many truths. Mm -hmm. if, if you could explain that a little bit. Um, again, if I may cite uh, this time, not from Yoruba or from uh, Senegal, uh, South African culture, uh, the, uh, the, I think it's, the saying is well known, Tiano Boka, the, known as the sage of Bandiagara, who put it together very concisely uh, in the words, there is your truth, there is my truth, and there is the truth. And this is the attitude, even though he was Malian, it's interesting that this is at the heart of Yoruba culture, the Orisha. Uh, the Orisha uh, translate this, uh, the, the followers of Orisha translate this through their practice of the religion. Uh, I've described how, for instance, within one household, you can have a follower of um, Oshun, goddess of the river, a follower of uh, Ogun, uh, the god of uh, uh, poetry and war, you know, this seeming contradiction, um, a follower of um, Obatala, the uh, god of purity and saintliness, etc., etc., and all within the same house within the same compound, each with his or her own corner of worship. A child is born and uh, the Babalao, who's sort of diviner and traditional healer, discerns some characteristics in that child 
and says, oh, this is a child of uh, Obatala. As the child grows up, the child may decide or may show other tendencies, which, in which, uh, as a result of which it is uh, uh, divined for him or her that, no, perhaps you should try uh, Shago as a pathway to ultimate truth, universality. And there's no contradiction. Uh, the child is not thrown out. The uh, man doesn't divorce the wife for following this other. No. The, the sense is that if you're seeking ultimate truth, uh, you must be prepared to travel by different routes to begin with. We have a proverb which says, that there are many paths towards the market, that universal uh, congregation in the market. And this is something which, of course, has found resonance in many societies when the slaves moved across the America, uh, to the Americas and resulted in the kind of syncretism between Yoruba uh, um, deities and Roman Catholic saints. Yoruba found absolutely nothing strange about it. Ogun became Saint Anthony, Chocmanon uh, became Lazarus, and vice versa, etc., etc. So that kind of the, the rigidity which is practiced, let us say, by other religions, you know, uh, it doesn't exist at all in Yoruba culture. The film make, uh, makes it very clear that uh, Soinka's attack on negritude was just one amongst others. Uh, another position was uh, the one of Edouard Glissant. You worked a lot about, uh, and uh, Edouard Glissant is developing his philosophy on the background of the experience of the Caribbean. How would you uh, situate the notion of truth and reality in this kind of philosophy? Right. I'm in a way uh, coming from a third generation. Uh, you have negritude uh, with the founding fathers, Alun Job, Senghor, Cesar, Birago Job, and so on. And then you have the second generation with Fanon, uh, Edouard Glissant and Soyenka. So if you see all of them coming at negritude in order to force it to talk about African decolonization, in order to, to go from, I mean, Soyenka says this very well in the book, uh, The Burden of Memory, that in a sense, we, negritude needed to go past this moment of being a movement. This is very important because he also explained that Anglophone countries could not have created a movement, that the movement itself has, is part of French modernist movements, surrealism, expressionism, and so on. So, it was, so they needed to ground negritude in different kinds of truths from this literary artistic movements. You know, so, so he mentioned that, and so Fanon, of course, his way of grounding the truth is to say, uh, uh, with Césaire, il n'y a de culture que culture nationale. You know, forget about your negritude, your grandparents were kings and queens and so on, but it's only the day you pick up your weapons to create your nation, it's through that that you will create your true culture. This is, uh, Fanon says this. And then Glissant also was very disturbed. If you look at people, uh, books like uh, uh, the discourse on uh, uh, creolité, or Elos à la creolité, Glissant began to be seriously concerned about the way negritude was being defined 
in the Caribbean as Africanness defining the true blackness. If you are in the Caribbean or, or the United States, you see African mask, you say this is the real Africa. You see Senghor, even Caesar was making this mistake all the time. He was considering Senghor as more authentic than himself. So Gleason said that he felt compelled to redefine uh, a creolization, not creolité, but creolization as an attempt to show that the Caribbean also had, uh, they were mixed with uh, uh, white populations, uh, with Indian population, as well as African population, so that they will stop seeing themselves as inferior and to the whites and to the Africans. Of course, this, the way we perceived this, we thought that Gleason basically was against Africa. That's the only part we saw in this uh, discourse. And then Soenka grounded negritude even more into what, as readers, we were calling, uh, uh, he called it first, animisticism. Animism plus mysticism. He talks about some of this in the film. So when I was growing up third generation, we no longer had the right almost to read negritude because you have Fanon said no, Soenka says no, Gleason says no. So I, was, I started reading Senghor much, much later because it was the bad object. How can you read Senghor? So what, what ended up happening that saved me was that, well, Fanon, of course, didn't have the, t uh, the time, but if you begin to reread uh, Soenka, and that is, if, if you read Soenka, not the interpreters, because the interpreters, you just spend your whole life laughing at negritude. He called them the negritudinist. You know, so you spend the whole time, and then, you know, the tiger and the tigritude and so on. And then, you know, you read, uh, Gleason's Creolite, then you don't want to read Negritude. But happily, Soenka began to rewrite Negritude. Uh, happily, if you read uh, Gleason to Philosophie de la Relation, Poetique de la Relation, he began to talk about his debt to Negritude. In fact, Gleason was the organizer of the 1959 conference in Rome. So they began to not only acknowledge the debt to the negritude writers, but also to take negritude to a level that uh, people like myself uh, coming out of mostly Western discourse, uh, you know, my generation is post-structuralism. Yes. Yeah, so we, we, could, yeah, could, could, could one say that the major attack from Soinka as well as Grisson was against this essentialist notion of negritude. Yeah. That it is by itself, let's say, a universalism which doesn't acknowledge others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, I always emphasize the fact that negritude, if you like, went through uh, two phases, which for me was logical. The negritudinists, uh, especially, you know, uh, Senghor's side, felt that you must begin by validating almost uh, in a mood of exclusion the African past, its culture, its history, its, uh, its relationship with phenomena, etc., mm -hmm. etc., et that it 
it stood alone. It was uh, almost autogenous. That was the first uh, step. And then move from there to say, yes, we have uh, valorized that the, uh, the components of that culture, its history, etc. We have analyzed, we've synthesized it, we've drawn out its essence. Now let's look at it in relation to the others and construct a universalist uh, mentality, uh, approach, uh, culture, uh, but with that propulsion of the blackness, the, 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 the authentic blackness of the African peoples, one that has been neglected, derided, disdained for so long. And so I, I've tended to look at um, uh, the trajectory of negritude from those two, the point of those two stages. You see, this, the and, first oh, yes. part of negritude, the situation <coughs> is that the first inspiration of negritude was Harlem Renaissance. And Harlem mm -hmm. Renaissance was discovering Africa through exhibitions in New York of African masks. So the whole idea of leaven mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. culture, the dough of culture. And then anthropologists, including the, the great German uh, uh, Leo Frobenius. So these were the first inspiration of negritude. And what Soenka, Fanon, and Gleason did was to actually ground negritude. And this is what is really important to us. But I know you're going to get into that. So I just wanted to say that. No, I would like to shift now a little bit um, to an another notion, so to say, of truth. Um, and Bruce um, uh, Inge has this very nice uh, quote by T.S. Eliot, which he crowns in Yoruba uh, culture, where he says, the dead body, the dead body which you have buried, in, which you have buried in the garden, <coughs> push, pushes its tools to the light. <laughs> the dead body which, which you have buried in the garden pushes its truth to the light. There are a lot of dead bodies in Africa, and one way to deal with them is uh, the institution of truth commission. And uh, could you elaborate from your perspective, since you followed uh, numbers of truth commissions uh, in, in Africa, in which way truth is established by these truth commissions? Uh, that's a very large <coughs> subject. Um, I must always remember <coughs> that, um, first of all, there's what you might call a specific truth commission. In other words, you have the situation like South Africa, which was dedicated to uh, the, one of the most prolonged crimes against humanity that ever took place within a, a national space. Uh, and so that was beamed at, uh, uh, at, that, uh, at that crime. But at the same time, it took its authority from what we have called Ubuntu or negritude, the principle, the belief that there is really no outcast in the humanity. There's a little bit of Christian uh, theology in it as well. I mean, it's not surprising, I'm not surprised that it's somebody like um, uh, Desmond Tutu who was able to extract that out of you know, uh, certain uh, African uh, uh, beliefs that a community, you know, does not really discard any of its own once you're, you're, you regard the community as a human one. 
if I can illustrate this with even something more practical. Some of the greatest atrocities committed on the African continent were committed by child soldiers. Those children, and of course, which means that the adults were guilty of that crime because they brainwashed and they corrupted those children, turned them into monsters. And community is very strong in Africa, as you know. And when the war was over, or when some of them were captured, an attempt was made to integrate these children back into the community. And those who had experienced you know, real bestiality at the hands of those children didn't want them back in the community. They didn't say kill them or anything. They just said, we won't, don't want them in here. Um, the UN um, Organization for Children Rehabilitation, I forgot something. No. It, was, it was led by Sane or something, mm -hmm. something like that. They, they brought in European psychiatrists to, to try and retune the minds of those children because they were lost. They were, they were lost to humanity in my language. And they failed completely. And eventually, uh, some African leaders suggested, why don't you let, invi invite back traditional healers into this process, take them back to this process. And they brought those children in, they took them through traditional rituals in which they were made to recover their childhood, uh, the, the child in them, take them through the atrocities they had committed, and uh, eventually these tough, really, you know, drug-seasoned, they were blubbering like children. And through that process, by going back to African traditions, the tradition, method of healing, they were able to turn those lost children into human beings once more. That's an example of, let us say, the healing uh, methods proceeding from a very profound philosophical um, uh, set of beliefs that there's really no outcast to humanity. And that, is, uh, that was a principle that underlined and inspired Desmond Tutu's, uh, and his colleague, of course, creation of the, of the, uh, of the Truth Commission. Now, you say the Truth Commission's all over Africa. Yes, some of them work. You know, one is being proposed for Nigeria for our experience under, under, um, under Sonia Bacha, for instance. Uh, but it seems to me that there's a, a larger Truth Commission which is required. And this is the Truth Commission of what outside uh, forces did to Africans. How far back does it go? How far back should it go? Does it go back to the very beginning of slavery, you know, which was uh, Arab slavery, continuing, prolonged, and even made more horrendous by the European entry to the trade? Does it include colonialism? Does it include Islam and Christianity? What they did both in their own societies and what they have done on the African continent, and what incidentally, certain strains of those religions still do to African culture, African humanity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Where does truth begin? You know, how do you extract it completely? And then, what African leaders themselves have done to diminish the humanity of Africans. Sure. So it, it, that's why I say it's a very large subject. You know. Yes. Uh, of course, in these processes, uh, as you mentioned and uh, showed that with uh, the, the childrens, which in this case were perpetrators uh, mm -hmm. in this process, uh, is uh, th that you have, since uh, really personal experiences of violence and so on uh, are involved in this, this is not objective truth in any way. Uh, this experience of many individuals which are involved in that. So the question is, uh, do you see also a role literature or writing can play in this? Because you have to find a language to express the situation. Or do you see this just as a legal process? Mm -hmm. well, I think one is constantly questing for truth. There's no question about that. Uh, for, if only for the reason that you encounter, you encounter situations where, to go back to what I said earlier, you question the humanity of those who are supposed to be part and parcel of your own community. Uh, and then the lies which are told to sustain totally inhuman conditions, uh, the, the inhuman relationship between the ruler and the ruled, and you have to ask yourselves, what actually is the, is the nature of, of the human being, ultimately? Yeah. And I'm afraid you don't ever arrive at any satisfactory answer. You know, if I may, as I've done once in a while, um, uh, extended Tiano Boka's yes, uh, statement, your, your truth, my truth, and the truth, and I say there's also a fourth position which is alarming which is that maybe there is no truth. You know, that all we have is relativism. Who knows? I don't know. Uh, how would, uh, since you are really uh, into Clisson, how would uh, this kind of truth, as it is uh, dealt with, negotiated in uh, the Truth Commission context, be conceptualized in his theory of the relation of, uh, uh, the poetics of relationships? Well, as I was listening to Wally, in many ways, I was also thinking that there are some processes through which the truth also hides its opposite. And both for, for Soenka and, uh, and Glissant, uh, and especially in the re-evaluation of negritude, uh, what become more interesting is the, that which is not seen, uh, that Gleason would call uh, opacity, for example, uh, and how that opacity began to negotiate with the things that are transparent, that are systematic, that are visible, that are institutional. So these invisible things, you know, uh, Gleason would say, some, uh, he would say seemingly in, uh, insignificant but no less valid and essential to the equilibrium of the world uh, than the so-called more powerful and visible ones. And I brought uh, in my iPad because there is this moment in uh, the burden of memory where uh, Soenka talks about uh, idiocy. 
for me, it's a brilliant moment uh, about this because everything that is not transparent, that you do not accept that is truth, you call it idiot language in, in many ways. Uh, uh, so he, he says, uh, he, he responding to that, he said, twisting uh, the blade of denigration from the hand of the racist, he will demand, and what do you know of the deity of Batala, the god and protector of albino, the cripple, and over disadvantaged of humanity? What do you know of that mysterious confidant of, of, of the gods, the touched by the god? So this is a form of truth, people who are touched by the gods, and this is pantheistic in, in many ways, uh, whose interior language of communication you interpret as idiocy. And there is always that hunting the truth for me. I don't know, what do you think about that? Yes, I, it's, you, you've, uh, you, you've sort of uh, outlined the, the real puzzle, uh, the, the, the sort of interior language, for instance, yeah. of those we consider mad, the interior language. Uh, where, where are they? when they converse seemingly with themselves. And this has been an experience which I've had since childhood. I think I've described my experience with an uncle of mine who somehow, you know, sometimes he'd be in his room and he'd be talking animatedly to people by himself and the family would peek inside there. No, he's there all by himself. And sometimes he would demand food for his companions. and. Um, they would put wraps of uh, echo and ekuru uh, with him. And somehow, talking, chatting, uh, feasting by morning, all the food would be gone. And I don't think he was that big an eater, mm. and, uh, from, all, from all evidence, from the relations. But there he was. And for him, during that period, that, that's his most intimate, truthful, moment, and everybody recognized it. He was touched by the gods in some way or the other. Just as uh, some children are treated like adults in Yoruba society, they are treated with veneration simply because certain things come out of their mouths which uh, should not, you know, cannot in any way be envisaged for a child of four, five. You know, I'm not talking about predictions. I'm just talking about really wise sayings. Sometimes he's allowed even to intervene in the council of uh, elders simply because he's, he was, he's considered a kind of reincarnation. And he's, he's sometimes given that name, which is Babatunde, that is the father who's returned, or the grandfather who's returned, etc., etc., etc. In many ways, uh, for Glissant, truth comes through what he calls relation. Uh, mm -hmm. and what is important to him in this sense, in this term, uh, beside the fact that he will define relation as uh, linking things, relation as relating a story to, from one place to another place, or relation as sending something someplace. Uh, what is important to him is that differences are crucial, but how do we find solidarities between differences? Instead of 
only finding opposition between differences, what uh, Soenka was calling class of civilization. How do we find solidarities? And for, for uh, Glissant, that comes through a poetic of uh, what he called uh, uh, la pensée du tremblement. Human beings no longer tremble. They no longer shake. They're sure of themselves. They reassured. So, whereas, so uh, Glissant says, the earth shakes. When he was a child, he used to hear the river run. So he used to speak languages that have all disappeared now through transparency, through development, through other things. And we, we rediscover the truth, we do this, rediscover the poem by learning, first of all, to tremble with other people. When we hear other people's story, we have to learn how to tremble. And it's through that that we begin to understand things. And for him, once he learned the tremblement, then he can also, I don't know how to translate, a better way to translate this word, his no, French notion of imaginaire, which is translated in a true post-structuralism as the imaginary, but it's not really the imaginary. Mm -hmm. you know? So you have to, you can't fight terrorism with terrorism. Uh, you have to fight terrorism by uh, providing over imaginaries, if I, because I don't have a translation, to the people. Over spaces of people to imagine themselves differently. But it can't just fight, because over terrorism will, will, will be coming. And then Gleason says, we discover every day that our thoughts and our relations, the most unexpected, the most hidden, our intuition, individual and collective, were at the same time felt elsewhere because we think we're so unique, was uh, by others in foreign languages in other regions of the world. This is why he has a whole book called uh, In Nouvelle Région du Monde, because he's trying to think of a world where people actually are thinking the same ways, but these ways are not being related, so we think that they're just isolated like to come back again to you as a writer and oh, also yes. play, playwright. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, one of your politically very much debated uh, plays was the dance uh, of the forest. And uh, in, in this play, the deads come and get alive again. So the spirits are hunting you of the, of the deads. How would you relate this kind of uh, yeah, writing on the Nigerian situation as a writer mm -hmm. uh, to the, the issue of uh, the negotiation of truth in the political context? Well, the play which you mentioned, A Dance of the Forests, which I wrote at the time of Nigerian independence, um, you could say that uh, it was uh, a play, a precursor, a precursor of that uh, uh, soundbite uh, of uh, a tiger does not <laughs> proclaim his uh, tiger to you. Um, uh, just leaps and devours its prey, which is a total thing. People don't remember the second part of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and A Dance of the Forest, for me, dealt uh, at the time, as I said, it was almost like a precursor of an aspect of uh, negritude which dangerously distorted the truth. Again, this is where the question, what is truth? Mm -hmm. In the 
what I call the glamorization, uh, a glamorization tendency in negritude. History was deodorized, <laughs> completely deodorized. <laughs> Africans were warriors, poets, sages, etc., etc. But we know <laughs> that Africa was also a place of cruelty. You know, its history was a place of cruelty. Uh, vestiges, or even not just vestiges, but a sort of a replication of which was already affecting us as living beings in this here and now. And I was warning in that play that let's not be over-romantic about our past, otherwise we'll carry those negatives into the present and into the future. So it is the most natural thing in the world for me to take up arms against the excessive romanticization of a past. Uh, it was a message which was not very popular at the time, certainly not at the time of independence. The government which was supposed to, uh, to uh, sponsor, it was a play competition, the winning play uh, for the independence, said absolutely no way. So we're supposed to be rejoicing and celebrating and so on, and this man comes and tries to pour cold water on, uh, on the euphoria, you know, and we, you want us to, no way. Uh, but I wasn't saying don't celebrate, I wasn't saying, I, I was just saying, let us begin right now. This is a moment, if you like, uh, in which we can begin a serious search for truth, not just about our past, but the possible truth about what may be our present, what we may be carrying into this present, and so let's just be aware of it. And so in those ways, I've you know, tried very yeah. uh, hard to integrate truth into the... Uh, in the context of dealing with truth commissions and so on, you mentioned that truth is not enough. You need also a reconciliation process or uh, even a restitution process. Can you yes. elaborate on that? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, um, I, I, Desmond Tutu and I, my elder brother, we've <laughs> always clashed on this issue. And I always tell him, well, you know, the, the Christian theology, you know, is, is beginning to, uh, if not beginning to, but it's clearly dominating your thought processes. And I said, this is dangerous. I've always taken the position that, uh, in fact, I think I've used the image of an archway, uh, again from tradition. When a, a member of society has infringed, or a group have infringed on, um, on the rights of another in a really deleterious way, not just um, fringe, you know, uh, marginal uh, crimes against them, but serious ways. When the reconciliation process begins, there are certain rituals which, uh, uh, which are put into effect. There's, for instance, the community, or maybe just the violators, mm. pass through an archway, considered an archway of healing, an archway, whether physical healing or spiritual healing, they pass through an archway. And uh, I've tried to look, but that's only after discussion. After discussion where one side has admitted the truth, you know, and the other has shown willing 
to let the past be. As, and I've tried to describe that archway as, um, as being made up <coughs> of truth on one side um, and reconciliation, one half of the archway. But in the midst <coughs> is that, um, is the, oh, what's the architectural word? I'm, I mean, I've written it down, now it's disappeared. Which holds both sides together. And I think the difference between um, um, just wanted to tell myself is that I believe that that stone, that uh, stone in the middle which holds both sides together, has to be restitution. Even if it's symbolic restitution, there has to be restitution. It's not enough to speak of uh, reconciliation, I believe, and it's not enough to admit gracefully or yeah, hesitatingly uh, the truth that what, holds, what is that word? Does anybody remember? It just vanished from my head. It's, it's in the middle. It holds the two archways together. Anyway, you know, the one, you know what I'm talking about. If you remove it, the archway falls, collapses completely. And I believe that that is the key to genuine, that is the key to genuine reconciliation and, in fact, the ultimate destination of truth, to have some restitution. Yeah, when you speak of some restitution and you mentioned uh, in the film that you see migration processes from Africa to Europe mm -hmm. as kind of this larger picture, uh, yeah, what are the measures to say, yeah, this is, or what is the criteria? Yeah, the African continent, yes. The, the yeah, for, for that re restitution is, is really happening. You say, you say there should be some restitution. Yes. Um, mm. uh, could one more... Pre more precise on this? Uh, for example, yeah, the restitution in, in, in South Africa or mm -hmm. uh, in the colonial context, mm -hmm. is that adequate or? Yeah, let, let me give you an example, practical examples that we're not just yeah. talking about something. When people, that's why in the film you saw that I didn't want to use the word reparation. I said I deliberately just use, I deliberately use the word restitution because restitution can be symbolic, you know. Uh, reparations, you're talking about uh, uh, one mule and how many acres <clears throat> in the American restitution system. I said, for instance, for the crimes which Europe has committed against the African continent, um, that let the, including looting the artworks of Africa, you know, really, really looting the artworks of Africa, that let you make very a important aspect in Berlin hmm? context. It, this is a very important aspect yeah, in the Berlin context. Yes, because when you remove a people's uh, art, is uh, it's not just the manifestations of a, uh, of a people's spirituality, sensibility, uh, relation to the outer world, to relation, human relationship, everything. When you take when a, a people's art heritage away, you're, you're really denying them, depriving them of their humanity in, in a very profound way. So I said, all right, slavery, colonialism involved, dehumanization, so why don't you repatriate these precipitates of the humanism of the African people to their original homes, and we'll write off everything. So that's one example of what you might call a symbolic, but at the same time, material form of restitution. And there are other ways in which it can be done. You can do it, um, 
I don't, well, I was going to mention uh, forgiveness of debt. I don't like the expression debt. I don't like the expression forgiveness. Uh, both have to be defined very precisely to make it sense. But let's just say, okay, a symbolic act. Repatriate all the artworks you stole from Africa, and we call it quits. That's one. I think this is a wonderful sentence to finish our talk here. Uh, we have the opportunity to uh, get some questions, comments out of the audience. And perhaps we collect two, three, and then have a second round. <coughs> where, where, where is our mic? <laughs> there is a question there, I see. Oh, Mike is coming. Uh. Um, I have a question about negritude and truth. Um, so I know that negritude in the early stages is always. Um, no, a lot of people have criticized negritude for not including women in defining what it is and what it means. And I was wondering at a later time if you think, Mr. Suyinka, that it succeeded in including more female voices because I, I guess as a woman I do think that truth can only be defined by men and women and all others. Did you catch that? Yes, I have an yes. echo. Mm -hmm. uh, negritude and woman. Negritude should not only be defined by men, but also women. Uh, do ah. you see this? Uh, On the contrary. I'm, I'm sorry if we've sounded as if we were discussing men. I mean, when I called uh, Senghor a rhapsodist, for instance, he, you, couldn't just, you couldn't keep uh, Senghor off women. Just go through his poetry, you know, femme noire, the everything surrounding rhythm, the sense of closeness to earth, etc. Et the, the, the question, I think, is also women as actors in the movement yeah. of necritude. Yeah, uh, I think that history, I mean, in the last 15 years, has, is being rewritten. Okay. Uh, if you look, for example, at the salons in Paris, they were actually run by women, the Nardal sisters. You talk about this in your book. And if you look at uh, uh, the Negritude Woman, there is a book called exactly that by that title. Uh, Camille, uh, she teaches at Vanderbilt University. The title is The Negritude Woman. And it talks about the role of women in negritude, which was erased in the 50s completely through the independence celebration. And, and now more and more books are coming after that book. But that's the best title I can give you uh, right away in terms of woman role uh, in negritude. But in, in Soenka's book, he talks about the salon that actually allowed for the incubation of uh, negritude movement. Uh, the Nardal sisters in Paris. This is where Alain Lac was going. This is where all the, the artists were going and they met Senghor and Césaire. And the movement was created in these two sisters' uh, uh, salon and one of them actually wrote a dissertation on uh, Alain Lac. But Negritude Woman probably is the easiest source if you tap that uh, 
he will, he will go to other uh, areas. Okay, other questions? Oh, everybody is happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only the women were a bit dissatisfied at the beginning. Yeah, so, ah, yeah, here. There was a question there. Th there's here? Okay, then. Sorry. No, well, here, here uh, Hans Christoph Buch, and then later on. Mr. Diawara, you mentioned Leo Frobenius, yes. the German uh, anthropologist, thinker who, who studied Africa before and after World War I. Had Senghor read him? Did yes. he know Frobenius' work? He wrote several essays on Frobenius and the contribution of Frobenius to the Negritude movement, yes. And he visited the Ethnography Museum here in Berlin. Yes, he knew him very well. Yeah. Hi, I'm over here. Um, thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to ask you, if you talk of resistition, and the means of, like in symbolic means, don't you think that you're also enacting a kind of neoliberal way of reparation? Because um, it would deny like the, the importance, the essential of reparations in economic means from Europe to Africa. Did he get it? That if, if you use restitution as opposed to reparation, mm -hmm. you fall in the trap of uh, neoliberalism because you are dismissing the economic significance of reparation. Am I yeah. getting it right? Okay. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say for a moment that uh, the economic aspect, uh, the economic uh, factor, uh, is what distinguishes my use of uh, uh, restitution as opposed to reparations. No, restitution for me is a more universal uh, expression. Reparations has become a very specific, uh, the very specific language of redressing a particular crime between Europe and Africa, uh, or between the Arab world and Africa. Very specific to those. I'm talking about uh, the, the very condition of crimes against community, crimes against humanity, of which for me, slavery itself is uh, uh, an example. And the enormity, because you know, I know that economic uh, reparations have been, I mean, economic, um, the economic compensation has been tied to reparations. And the question which is always raised is, how do you go about it? All right, I mentioned briefly what has been, what has been proposed also, the forgiveness of debt. But then that becomes very complicated. How were those debts generated in the first place? How much of the impoverishment of the African continent can be laid at the door of the colonial, colonial powers and how much of it can be laid at the door of their successors? An embarrassing, an embarrassing catalog 
of succession of despoilers, not only despoilers, but criminals against their own humanity. When we get to that, and then when you make that uh, economic, uh, you emphasize the economic as aspect, how do you sit down and calculate? I know general formula have been, have been made. And, uh, and then, how do you measure it? For me, it's such an imponderable, impossible task that I think that the admission of guilt, and this is along the principles of Ubuntu, if, I mean, um, truth and reconciliation uh, aspect of, uh, of um, Ubuntu, the admission of guilt, followed by a symbolic, in African um, uh, method, a symbolic act of restitution. I believe that that, then you can add the economic aspect if you like, but I'm talking principally about just addressing the base, the foundation of that criminal relationship in order to be able to move forward into a new politics of uh, a new culture of human relationship. That's all. I don't underestimate the economic, but it's just impossible to calculate. Yeah, how do you do it? Okay, we can, there's over there. And perhaps one more, uh, then we have to close. My question is on the notion of truth in context with the dictionary of now. My question would be, because there was a philosophical movement, a pragmatist movement, and they said, well, does truth make a difference in the world? And they concluded, well, it doesn't really make a difference, so can we just abolish the notion of truth and use instead maybe justification or warranted assertability? So I wanted to ask all of you, what do you think, like, is truth and the notion of truth still a valid notion in the dictionary of now. Good. Uh, we, we, we take that too and then we answer, I think, a very important question, yeah. Thank you so much, all three of you. It's an honor to have you, Mr. Suyenka, in Berlin. Um, I had two questions, one about the film, which show us a kind of um, essentialism and the discussion of this is the African continent and this is the European continent and so on, culture, art and so on. As you also I'm surely know about Martin Bernal's study of how 60% of the Greek language consists of African languages. So it was this, uh, this problem with essentialism, it was one thing. And the second thing was that Fanon did not appear in this film. It seemed that his voice did not matter at all when it comes to negritude. And it, it related perfectly with what Suyenka said about the contemporary Africa. Because as you know, according to Fanon, Africa was never decolonized. As the, what he called intermediary subjects replaced the um, the strict colonial system that 
that reproduced itself. This was one thing. The other was about this question of truth. I'm a, I'm a genocide scholar. And we don't simply talk about the truth, we talk about justice. And my question to Suyenka is, is justice possible in Africa to its history and to those who leave Africa and die in the desert, in the sub-Saharan desert, and on the way to this continent, is justice ever possible? Is symbolic restitution matter when we think about those people and not about the African states and the political system? It seemed that it, goes, it takes us back to the film and the question of colonization. It appears that with this question of colonization addressed indirectly in the film, we, justice also is deferred, is something that is about to come and is never arriving. And it, it, it takes us to a level where we have to follow the African leaving Africa and the new liberal multi-corporations taking over the continent with their phenomenon intermediary subjects. Yeah, I, no, I, missed, I, I missed most of that. I have this problem there. So just, I, I uh, think the okay. relevant part of the question to uh, Ole Soyenka, because the other part may be addressed to, to me, the filmmaker, because he can't take blame for the film. Uh, the relevant part was could we have the truth without justice? If I understood you well, uh, what do we do with justice? That's what I understood, yeah. And is there a real decolonization process possible in Africa? That's right. the second aspect of it. Well, I, we've embarked on the journey. <laughs> we've embarked on the journey, there's no question at all. I don't think any task is ever finished, ever completed. Um, it's to, to say that there's a moment when decolonization with its effects, uh, with the effects of colonization, both um, cultural, economic, spiritual, very deeply penetrative. And, uh, and then there is, of course, the expression neocolonization, which is very real, very concrete. Uh, and then today, we even have what I would like to call recolonization, which is largely uh, economic and cultural. To say that that process will ever be uh, complete, I think will, uh, will be uh, self-deception. It's not possible. It's a question of uh, reducing it to manageable proportions where at least African nations, former colonies, can boast that they're actually in control of their day-to-day -day existence uh, their resources, that they, they have arrived at a stage of genuine equal partner, uh, partnership, so that we're no longer even talking about debt forgiveness, debt cancellation, debt rationalization, in which if you owe, you owe, because the same way as entrepreneurs owe, or vice versa, business people owe banks, etc., so that it's seen as a clear technical relationship rather than a dependency syndrome in which one side 
dictates uh, everything. Then there are also constant uh, enemies of genuine, um, of genuine independence, authentic independence, cropping up all the time. The one phrase which struck me when we were watching the film was uh, Senghor's statement that uh, the work of militant negritude is just beginning. And it, it, it struck me very forcibly because negritude, uh, if you may just go back to that subject, has always struck me as a, a weapon lying, a weapon of resistance lying in waiting to be resurrected, to be exhumed, resumed, whenever there is any threat to what I consider the, the authentic being of Africans. One such, one such menace is one that is recognized, but it's not recognized as being especially pertinent to the African continent, and that is the rise of militant and sadistic religious fundamentalism as represented by Daesh, or call it Daesh, call it Ansar Deen uh, movement in Mali, and call it Boko Haram from our own country. That a weapon, an intellectual weapon, has not yet been fashioned to be used constructively and methodically against this indoctrination, uh, religious indoctrination, which, whose mission seems to re be to reduce humanity to ciphers. We never thought we'd have it uh, rearing its head on the African continent. We never thought the of the possibility of Al-Shabaab in this century, or the last for that matter. We never thought that a movement would arise from within Africa, which absolutely, which says anything, anything at all, which is not within this narrow concept of truth, if you like, is, is fatal to those who, who carry this kind of virus of knowledge. We never thought it would happen. And up to now, Africa and the black world has not, exactly like the European world also, found an intellectual alternative, a system of knowledge which appeals and to which um, the citizens can respond as something quite natural and belonging to themselves struck me just now that negritude is one of those uh, concepts uh, which can be used to counter that extreme indoctrination that sees, for instance, uh, the mission of humanity to be not on this earth, but outside of it. Because African society, African cultures, African belief systems completely repudiates such, uh, such murderous garbage. And it seems that maybe it's time to resurrect negritude uh, and as a weapon of self-consciousness and aggressive, militant, if you like, combative self-consciousness to resist this you know, monstrosity which is eating up uh, our societies. Perhaps you say something to Fanon in the context of negritude. Uh, that is part right. of the question. And the final question to all of us. Right. Uh, should we stay with the concept of truth at all? Yeah. Briefly, that question, I would replace truth with relation. You know, uh, uh, the poetics of relation 
and believing uh, is the only truth for, for Glissant, le vivant. Uh, rien n'est vrai, tout est vivant. That's what Glissant said. Nothing is uh, real, nothing is true, but everything is alive. That's, so, and things stay alive through their relations with other things. So that's, I would put relation as opposed to truth. But the, the question of Fanon, uh, related to the question of essentialism, uh, it, it's a difficult question to answer because I think both Senghor and Soenka, uh, Soenka, Soenka spent all his time in the film putting things in quotation marks, you know. He put everything in the quotation. I know this, so he put quotation marks everywhere. And Senghor keeps saying it's not racial, it's cultural. But also, even if you look at people who popularize uh, essentialist discourse in post-structuralism, you know, like Gayatri Spivak, she will go back to strategic essentialism. Stuart Hall, toward the end of his life, uh, I mean, his best statement to Homi Baba is that the sentence has to come to a stop at some point. So I thought that the essentialism question has become very easy and simple. Uh, it's no longer an attack. It's probably a way of getting rid of something. Otherwise, it's no longer relevant. Uh, so Fanon is important. Uh, Fanon, uh, yeah, I, don't, I, I really don't think we can have a discussion if we have to base it on essentialism. We're not going to get anywhere uh, because philosophically, you cannot test it. But Fanon, on the other hand, why isn't Fanon in, in this film? Uh, I teach a class called Post-Negritude Fanon's Glissa and Soyenka. But I wanted a, a dialogue on the African context between Soyenka and Senghor. That's why Fanon is not here. If you look at the United States and probably Germany too, when you talk about negritude, everybody talks about Fanon. So a lot has been said about Fanon, and he's dead, so there is not much I can say. You know, okay. uh, you know Fanon way more than you know the discussion between Soyenka and Senghor. How many people know that book that I was mentioning? You can't even remember the title. That's why I want to bring that up and bring that in the discussion. Uh, in the U.S., everybody knows Fanon, <laughs> you know, okay. so I'm not going to bring anything. So that's okay. my main, uh, but, yeah. <laughs> so, Inka, you, you would like to give up with the notion of truth? We can just get rid of the notion of truth? Would you like to get rid of the notion of truth? Mm -hmm. Because it's not relevant anymore. And you want to get rid of it? I don't know, because it's a target, it's a goal, it's a, it's a quest. And I think life is all about quests. And so, even if one spends one's entire existence chasing this uh, chimera, it's still worth, I think, life uh, of existence. Okay, and I would add from my side uh, to Soinka, yeah, it's a quest, and there are different ways of truth, and one has to look at the procedures in which way they are get, getting established, and are they relevant or not, or adequate or not, better to say. I would stay with it. Mm. Thank you very much uh, for the engagement and Thank staying you. with us. Thank you. 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 Thank you.